coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. Sponsored by lionrock.life. The first thing our coach told us was, you are the worst class we ever recruited. And we regret recruiting every single one of you. It was interesting because we hadn't even started practicing yet. So they automatically set us up with that mentality of you're going to fail unless you prove yourself otherwise. So we are being called into these meetings, called into after practice sessions, just screamed out every day. And we had a rule where you had to be five minutes early to practice. So, but if you came and you know, you're a freshman, you don't know this stuff. So us thinking, okay, well, we got to be five minutes early to practice. We're here five minutes early to practice. Half an hour after training screamed at because we should know that you need to be five minutes early to the five minute early rule. So then you, you need to be there 10 minutes early. If you get there too early, you're going to make the coach mad. So don't get there too early. So then we all kind of just decided, okay, seven minutes, seven minutes before practice, that's safe. And so it was that even the most subtle behavior control um, that just started from the beginning and grew. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Loeb Blassingame, and I am your host. And today we have Amy LeClaire. Amy grew up as a junior Olympic gymnast. At 11, she had her first interaction with obsessive compulsive disorder while on a trip with her class. Suddenly, she was bombarded by intrusive thoughts that made her wonder if she would hurt them, even though she had no desire to do so. She was able to find tools to help her with her OCD until she went to college. As a Division I gymnast at San Jose State, she experienced extreme verbal and emotional abuse from her coaches and was sexually assaulted by her head trainer. The trauma from that was buried, but came out in the form of anxiety, which she treated with copious amounts of Ativan, eventually becoming addicted while pregnant with her daughter. Amy experienced a severe depressive episode just before giving birth and delivered her child while hospitalized on a psych hold. Things had hit a complete bottom and she eventually sought help in the form of an intensive outpatient program that led to an OCD recovery program, which changed her life. After finally finding help that worked, she went on to participate in an FBI investigation of San Jose State and entered into litigation against the Cal State University system, eventually reaching a settlement agreement this past July. Amy now publicly advocates for athlete safety while focusing on the adverse effects of verbal abuse and sexual assault on mental health. Currently, she works with the nonprofit Advocacy Association, who has assisted over a dozen states in adopting laws to protect the basic freedoms and protections of NCAA athletes. This episode with Amy was really eye-opening for me as someone who was not a Division I athlete. I didn't know the ins and outs of how vulnerable these athletes are to abuses of power. Amy worked her entire life to get to where she was in college. Gymnastics was everything to her. And so when she got to college and found that her coaches were abusive, she was terrified to lose this opportunity that she had worked her entire life for. And it really highlights the amount of power some of these coaches and trainers hold over these kids. And I think the awareness of what that does to mental health and how we can support them is really important. Another piece I want to quickly highlight is that Amy didn't know 
that someone like her who had great grades, who was top of her class, who was division one athlete could become addicted to something because she didn't know that addiction could affect anyone. I think that that is a really important piece of information that everybody needs to be reminded of, that addiction can affect anyone at any time. So I won't give any more away. This episode is amazing. Amy is amazing. And without further ado, I give you Amy LeClaire. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Thank you so much for being here, Amy. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you for having me. So I want to hop right into a couple of the topics we're going to talk about, one being your OCD diagnosis and also how growing up as a gymnast and a junior Olympic gymnast, no less, played into some of the diagnoses that you received. Can you tell me a little bit about what it was like growing up and when you first noticed the symptoms that you would then come to understand as OCD? Yeah, absolutely. So the first time I really had a very clear sign of OCD, which of course at the time I didn't realize was OCD. I was 11 years old. I was on like an outdoor ed trip. So away from family for about a week up there. And now I know it was just a stressor. You know, I was away from family. I was out of my regular routine. And so at that time, all I could recognize it as, as these intrusive thoughts of what if I do something to hurt one of my classmates? What if I reach out and do something to hurt them? And so I just became petrified. Um, the whole time I stayed very COVID status, six feet away from it, everyone, because I was just like so petrified by this idea. I couldn't shake that I would hurt someone. I really struggled that whole trip. That's pretty much all I remember of the trip. I came home and for about a month, I was just an emotional wreck. I was crying in the evenings. I struggled at school to keep my focus. And so my parents were very astute and realizing pretty much right away, something is not right with Amy. But I was also afraid to say anything because I I was like, these are horrible thoughts of hurting someone. I never would want anyone to know that this is what's bothering me. So I kind of bottled it up. I did finally tell my parents and they went they went to a psychiatrist while I was at school one day just to kind of get the the doctor's thoughts on it and then at that time the doctor said yeah this sounds very much like OCD Amy should know you know there's nothing wrong with her like this is OCD but by the time you know about 3 4 weeks in I was back in my routine I was okay so that was the I think the very first episode from there I pretty much navigated through it throughout my adolescent years so one thing that we hear of and, and when we hear OCD, we think of people cleaning and we think of, you know, double checking doors or, or ritualistic behaviors. How does OCD play out when it's an intrusive thought and it's not related to that? Is it, are there different types of OCD? Yeah, definitely. And so I've been fortunate now that I've gone through 
quite a lot with with OCD is I recognize that there are different subtypes of OCD. And one thing that's unique about OCD is it's kind of this monster where, you know, so you have these intrusive thoughts, OCD, and you're able to work through those in exposure therapy, it can jump to something else. And that's actually been something I've experienced, um, especially postpartum after having my my children. My first real episode postpartum and, and pregnancy was very much centered around these intrusive thoughts. So a lot of these mental compulsions, these constant trying to convince yourself you're not a bad person, trying to convince yourself there's not something wrong with you. Um, for me, it manifested in list making. I would write for hours, fill up books of this is why there's nothing wrong with you. This is why you're having these thoughts. This is why this is happening. And it took up so much time because OCD latches on to... It can latch onto your creativity. So I love to write. I've always loved writing, loved journaling. OCD completely took that over. But I did notice after I had my son, so postpartum in that period, it really did actually jump a lot to the cleaning and the neatness and the need for order. So unfortunately, it's the disease is kind of insidious and cryptic in that way where it will play around. But certainly, it is not limited to neatness or cleanliness. I think a lot of people confuse perfectionism with OCD. Perfectionism can certainly be a subset of OCD, but you know, you almost hear like in the job interview, oh, I'm so OCD, thinking like, oh, employers are gonna love this. But it's there's nothing to love about it, unfortunately. I wish there was. When you describe the intrusive thoughts, is it are they the type of thoughts where um I, I know when I, my my babies were first born, I would have the thought of if there was an earthquake and I slipped and fell and they went flying, or like I, the, this thought that I would be party to them being hurt, or if I dropped them, or if I, you know, if something happened and I would picture the scenario happening. Is that how you experienced those intrusive thoughts, or were they different from that? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think with kind of like I was saying with OCD, it really can jump around. So when I was 11, that's really what I experienced. Like I better not get too close to someone or else if I think about reaching out and doing something to hurt them, that's going to happen. Right. So by the time I was older and adult uh, in my early 20s and pregnant with my daughter, I had that knowledge to know, okay, I'm probably not going to do something to physically hurt my child. But my OCD was very much centered around my thoughts are not right. So my thoughts are making me sick. It's hard to describe it really. But I was just became obsessed with this notion that my thoughts were hurting me, that I had to be thinking the right thing at all times, and that I wouldn't be able to hold my daughter or look at my daughter without having these gruesome images of something horrible happening to her. So it wasn't necessarily the fear that I would carry those things out, but rather the fear of the thoughts themselves, that I couldn't make these these images go away that I had, I felt I had completely lost control of my mind. And that was what was so terrifying to me was that sense of I'm trapped in my head and nobody can help me here. I just remember that was the thought that really just kind of pushed me over the edge and led me to the dark place that I was in was that I'm trapped in this jail that is my mind. And because this is not a physical place, nobody can reach in and help me. For me, an intrusive thought is a thought that is distracting and it gives you this feeling of, I need to fix it. I need to fix it. I need to fix it. And to the point where you can't carry on with your day or you can't focus because you're so preoccupied by this thought. And um, it's so easy to fall into those traps because it's they're so easily disguised. And I think that was one thing that particularly with exposure therapy that I got so much help on was 
when you're not educated about the disorder, it's almost impossible to tell sometimes like, is this OCD or is this is this normal? And the big thing that I was told that really helped me is it can actually be both. I think of in the sense of I've known people who've had relationship OCD. So they'll say, well, is this a red flag in my relationship? And they'll come to me asking me, you know, I'm not, I'm not a licensed clinician or anything, but just, you know, friends and family and so forth. They'll come to me asking, you know, I have OCD. I see this red flag in my relationship. Like, is that just OCD? Well, the answer to that would probably be no. If, if you see someone, first of all, I want to <laughs> tell people, be comforted. Like there is no such thing as a perfect relationship. There can definitely be something wrong, but what OCD will do is it will take it and make it absolutely catastrophic. You know, in just in a recent example, I had someone reach out to me that they had gotten in a fight with their with their partner and, you know, it was nothing nothing abusive, nothing violent, just a run of the mill fight. And they were just so distressed that, you know, they they needed to break up with this person, they shouldn't be with this person anymore and I just kind of invited them to look into that more and, and say, "Okay, is this a real red flag or is this an OCD red flag?" Because what I'm hearing is there is something that came up that you disagreed on, but OCD is making you catastrophize this. Right. It puts, it's a magnifying glass that if pushed too far in or held for too long, it could create that burning sensation and cause, yes. that, cause destruction. Whereas many of us think of just the magnifying glass as an ability to look at something and see it in a bigger way and help us make a different decision. But for people with OCD, that magnifying glass is just constant and never removed. Does that, does that sound close? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that sounds a- exactly right. I've also heard, which I completely relate to, that OCD can be like a radar. You feel like your radar is just always on and it's always picking up frequencies that other people wouldn't be picking up. So tell me a bit about gymnastics and what role that played in your life when you started and, and how it progressed. I was a junior Olympic gymnast. So I grew up pretty much at an elite level gymnastics. I'm basically grew up in our training center. So I was not homeschooled. A lot of my teammates did go on to be homeschooled just because of the commitment to the sport. My parents felt it was important that I remain in school, which I think was very healthy for me personally. So with with OCD, there are you know real and imagined threats and fears and dangers and risks, but you participated in something that had actual risks on a regular basis. Did that exacerbate your OCD? I definitely would say it did. I was able, you know, I almost think OCD in that way because I think in the gymnastics setting, it made me stronger um, because you're calculating these imagined fears and, and, you know, with the higher level gymnastics, these very, very real fears, you know, especially when you get to those higher levels, you're dealing with mental blocks on pretty extreme skills. So it's not like if you have a mental block doing a cartwheel, you'll probably be okay. But if you're doing, if you have a mental block and you're doing three flips on the balance beam, you're stepping into some kind of sketchy territory. So I do think that OCD made being successful in gymnastics more difficult, but it also made me more resilient. You know, in some ways I could see the OCD being useful because you might obsess on, you know, the form of 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 a certain technique or move that you would just think about over and over and over again that would make you more elite. 
Exactly. And I think that's where OCD was really tricky. And the sense where gymnastics, while it helped me move past OCD, it I, I definitely do think it also played into OCD and strengthened parts of OCD. So for instance, the repetition of skills hundreds or thousands of times until they're perfect. Um, someone with OCD sees that theme quite a bit in their real life. That perfectionism, that having to do a compulsion 10, 20, 30, hundreds of times in order for it to feel just right. Up until I was in my early 20s, OCD, it did cost me a lot, but it benefited me almost more in terms of elite sports. But then post-retirement, this behavior that had made me successful very quickly destroyed me. And so I think that was what was so challenging retiring from the sport was having to relearn almost how I lived because for a good amount of time, for about 18 years of me doing gymnastics, OCD and I were a team. And all of a sudden, I retire from this sport and OCD is still there, but gymnastics is not. (laughs) And so where does that OCD go? It goes to some very, very unhealthy coping behaviors. Tell me about the trauma that you experienced in gymnastics and what that looked and felt like. I was very fortunate and a lot of young women and young men who are gymnasts do not have this, unfortunately. But I actually grew up in a very healthy club gymnastics environment. Um, That's certainly not to say that there wasn't very tough discipline and there wasn't a lot of tears and, and growth and difficult days. But overall, it really was a healthy environment. Our coaches were respectful of us. There really wasn't... You know, you hear a lot, especially with junior Olympic gymnastics, a lot of body image pressure, a lot of focus on eating or over-focus on what you're eating. Going into NCAA, I kind of had hoped that would be the similar thing. And I was actually recruited to my dream school. It was a top 10 Division One school. But because of financial aid and scholarship opportunities, I ended up actually going to San Jose State. So I was already... It was tough for me because I had really worked so, so hard to get to this elite level NCAA gymnastics. And I ended up going to... You know, San Jose State was still a Division One school, but it wasn't my dream school. But I went in, you know, great attitude. I'm going to work super, super hard here. But immediately, the environment was very, very abusive. A lot of behavioral control, verbal abuse, emotional abuse, borderline physical abuse, and then uh, I was also sexually assaulted by our our head trainer. It was, to say the least, an extremely hostile and severe environment to the point where it was criminal. Can you tell us a little bit for those of us? who didn't play D1 sports, what that kind of stuff looks like. I think what many of us think of these days goes to the Larry Nassar case of and, and stories that we heard in that documentary or or those trials. Those are the types of things. And, and to be honest, when I heard a lot of those things, it didn't occur to me how... Because I didn't know the inner workings of how much access the trainers and the coaches and many of them, even when they aren't doctors, they, you know, help in your medical care and things like that. If you don't have the window into that world, it's hard to understand what that might look like. Could you give us a little insight into like, what does, what does verbal and emotional abuse look like at the D1 level? Yeah. And that's a fantastic question because um, kind of to go to what you said, I know after the Larry Nasser case, um, which actually, incidentally, same lawyers for San Jose State. <laughs> so same ones got involved um, with our class action. So, But what was 
notable to me was there's a documentary that came out on it, Athlete A on Netflix, highly recommend it. But you wonder if you're not in the sport or you're not in the environment, how could this person have gotten away with this on such a large scale? Why didn't anyone say anything? I think number one is the bystander effect. But more importantly, particularly for the athletes, number two is that you have already been degraded to where you're questioning your own thinking and your own mentality. So you don't even think to question, is this treatment appropriate? Because even if you have the inkling of a thought, that might have been inappropriate. You're automatically questioning yourself. Oh, you're just making it up. You know, you're you're overthinking this just like you overthink everything. You, you know, you have that voice that's been so deeply ingrained in your mind telling you to ignore every instinct that you have. So just to provide you with an example of what I endured. So, you know, the first thing our coach told us was you were the worst class we ever recruited. And we regret recruiting every single one of you. It was interesting because we hadn't even started practicing yet. So they automatically set us up with that mentality of you're going to fail unless you prove yourself otherwise. So we are being called into these meetings, called into after practice sessions, just screamed at every day. We had... Okay, for an example, um, we had a rule where you had to be 5 minutes early to practice. So, But if you came... And you know, you're a freshman, you don't know this stuff. So us thinking, okay, well, we got to be five minutes early to practice. We're here five minutes early to practice. Half an hour after training, screened at because we should know that you need to be five minutes early to the five minute early rule. So then you you need to be there 10 minutes early. If you get there too early, you're going to make the coach mad. So don't get there too early. So then we all kind of just decided, okay, seven minutes, seven minutes before practice, that's safe. And so it was that even the most subtle behavior control um, that just started from the beginning and grew to where one of the most extreme examples, well, not the most extreme, there's too many extreme examples, but one that sticks out in my mind is, you know, you just can't believe that you did these things or that you were in a place where you were convinced that this was normal. But I remember I was probably a sophomore and I was on balance beam and one of my teammates fell. She had a really bad fall and she actually almost entirely ripped off her toe. You know, she's sitting there on the mat, there's just pools of blood. Like you can smell it in the air. It's something that you will never forget. And so I jumped off the beam. She was white in the face. She was shaking. I went to go grab paper towels. I was like, someone, we need help over here. We need help over here. And my coach and the team captain looked at me. Nobody got her help. And they said, Amy, get back on the beam. And I was, I just stood there and I was like, but <laughs> like, I don't understand. And they said, just leave her there. So I got back up on the beam and just kept training and we left her there. And that's what we, that's the kind of environment we were in. We had girls training on concussions. We had one girl fall on bars, tear everything in her knee. So MCL, PCL, ACL, everything to such an extreme degree that there was, we found out later, there was hardly any ligaments left. She was told, our coach said, you know, you're making it up. You're always a wimp up about these kind of things. Put her on the trampoline. She sat there for two hours before getting any sort of medical attention. We just learned that these things were normal. We had to respond to all emails by midnight. So if the coach sent an email at 6pm, we had to respond by midnight or else we get morning practice. If you wore the wrong shade of blue, so if it was a light blue instead of the navy blue, morning practice. And what was done to me and what was done to other freshmen was the first morning practice that you got the team, um, you had to sit in a chair 
and watch them run sprints until they were crying. And then you were supposed to cry. So that was the thing. That was this big secret is the girls will stop running once the freshmen who were the cause of the punishment started crying. But you know, you couldn't tell anyone that. They had to learn the hard way kind of thing. So it had been done to me my freshman year. And but this was my sophomore year. One morning we were sprinting at it was probably 5:45 a.m., maybe six. So it was already bone cold. It's you know, it's north northern California. So it's that deep chill. We were sprinting, there's no heat. And I think two of the freshmen who had not responded to the email on time were sitting there and they were afraid to cry because they're like, Oh my gosh, if we cry, it's going to make it worse. But they didn't know that you're supposed to cry. That's the indicator like, okay, the team can stop. And so they just sat there. And so we kept running, running sprints, running sprints. Um, one of the girls fell, she broke her foot. We had to keep running, keep running. So afterwards, we went into the bathroom. There were girls who were coughing up blood, vomiting. That was common. What we would do is we we just learned if you were vomiting or if you were going to pass out, you just went and hid in the bathroom so that the coach didn't find out. And hopefully, you know, you you would wake up or it was so severe to the point where everything was controlled. We weren't discouraged from having our own cars because our coach wanted to know where we were at all times. We were told that the alumni were spying on us. We had to give our Snapchat names, our Instagram names. I mean, every piece of data that was personal to us was not allowed to be conveyed. We weren't allowed to see our own doctors. We weren't allowed to see counselors, therapists. There was so much fear that you couldn't do anything to take care of yourself without the coach knowing. So I remember one time I had really severe food poisoning. My coach thought that I had had alcohol poisoning because he had heard that there was a party, which I, I had not. I had food poisoning. And so I hadn't even been out that night. I had to wait until he gave me the approval to go to the emergency room, which was at 3am. So I was throwing up nonstop, needed an IV. I had to call him and get his permission to go to the ER. Then once I got to the ER... I got treated with an IV, liquid IV, got the report that this was not due to alcohol. This was due to dehydration from food poisoning. Um, the next day, which was less than 12 hours later, obviously had to come back into practice. He just started screaming at me, get out of my gym, profanity. And so kicked me out of practice, came back in at the end of practice. And I asked him, why, why did you throw me out? And he said, well, because I found out that you called your dad to get your insurance information. You shouldn't be talking to your parents anymore. You're 18. And that was a big thing. At the beginning of the year, every year, especially with freshmen, we had to agree that we would no longer contact our parents because now we were 18. And everything what? that we needed... Yeah. Yeah. We were told we were not allowed to contact parents. And so... Um, you weren't and, allowed to call your parents. Yeah. We were 18 years old being told that we're adults and we should no longer be in communication with our parents. When I was in study hall, I would sneak around to the back to call my parents. And when we would travel, the coach would take away our phones for the weekend. So we weren't allowed to have our own phones. So I know some girls had like travel anxiety, would go down, sneak down to the hotel lobby at like 1am and use the payphone. You know, I could go on and I don't even want to go on. But I mean, I just horrific, horrific things. And so you have zero judgment. You've been so stripped down of any safety, of any judgment that you can't even trust yourself. One of the things I'm thinking when you're describing these things, aside from obviously it's horrific, is that when, you know, I got, when I was a teenager, they have these essentially private jail boot camp lockdowns in Utah. And 
we got sent and I got sent to one for a year and we got sent to those because we were legitimate assholes. Like, I mean, I was (laughs) other kids. There were kids there who had like smoked weed once. So on behalf of them, no, but you know, a lot of us were there because we were, we were legitimately doing things that were not okay. The way that you're described when you're describing this, I'm like, that's how we were treated. And it wasn't until a class action 20 years later on one of the places that I had any idea that anyone cared that we were being treated that way. I remember it took me, it was the weirdest thing I had talked about on the podcast. I had talked, you know, openly, like I went through this crazy thing. And when the class action lawsuit came out, I had like a breakdown because it didn't occur to me anyone would care. People like I knew it was fucked up, but like, I didn't think anyone cared. And I thought, no one cared because we were fuck ups and who cared what happened to these kids. The thing I'm thinking of as it relates to your situation and this type of thing is, oh my gosh, this was happening to you guys in plain sight. You know, we were off somewhere, you know, not part of a system. You guys were part of the system. They're using the same tactics, which is getting you to question your reality, getting you to feel like no one's going to care, isolating you from your family. We got our phone calls taken away. We weren't allowed to talk to our parents. So was your hope to take gymnastics to pro or to the Olympics? Or what was the goal where it was worth it to you to continue to even be on this team? Yeah. And that's an amazing question because that's an ask from a lot of people. So to kind of explain how Junior Olympic versus NC2A works, particularly for women, men, if they're at that Olympic level, they can pretty much go on into their 30s. With women, unfortunately, you hit your peak at about 18 to 20. So with women, it's either you you do junior Olympic and then you kind of make that choice. Would I rather go that Olympic route or would I rather go NC2A route? Got it. Okay. Obviously, if you're going the Olympic route, there's quite a bit of sacrifices you have to make, which is kind of why I mentioned a lot of my teammates have been homeschooled. So a lot of people at that point are dropping out of school. They're moving to other states to train. And so, and of course the selection, I think now it's down to like four or five athletes on the Olympic team. So your chance of making the Olympics is they pick four people, you know, out of the entire United States of America. So NCAA gymnastics for most young girls and for most young women is now it is the gold star. It is the culmination of your career. This is the dream that you've worked for. And especially if you're in division one, it's like, and if you're in that top 30 schools, you have made it. I started gymnastics when I was three years old. And so our goal is to get you to college because that's where you will be at your peak. That is where you will showcase your skills. That is your pro. So you get to that point and then you're playing into the game very quickly of starting lineups. So it's not only hard to get onto a team, much less a division one team, much less a top 30 division one team or top 10. Now you're in this environment that's already just so white hot pressure. And then you take 17 girls and six girls make starting lineups. So now you're competing with that pool. And so you're just sucked into this competitive black hole to where you can't see reality outside of that. And that's where I was at. It was like, you were afraid that if you said the wrong thing, you would be pulled from starting lineups. You are fighting so hard for that spot in lineups to where you are 
you are doing things that are unthinkable, like leaving a teammate on the mat bleeding. You know, I think one of my darkest moments that I still struggle with, my sister, my twin sister was actually struggling with depression. And my coach pulled me and her into a meeting. And he asked me to tell her that she was being weak and that she was having a bad attitude and that um, because of her bad attitude, she was no longer allowed to travel with the team. And this is me now who takes so much pride in standing up for people who are made to feel small and to feel weak and to feel worthless. And so I've always had that internal drive to stand up for others. But my coach was able to break that down to where I was able to tell my sister that she was making up her depression. That has been the most out of all of the things that I have done or seen happen, such as leaving a teammate bleeding on the mat or leaving a teammate with no knee left on the side of the trampoline, not offering to help her walk to her car. Of all the horrific things that I have witnessed, and I think that was the worst thing I've ever done in my life was tell my sister that. And I'm still, I still haven't forgiven myself for it. Sorry. And so you're just, you know, that's the point that you're at is you can see why people get away with horrific things. It's because you, yeah, I mean, it's just, I can't even remember where I was going with this. Just recounting that. It's like, just takes me down a whole different rabbit hole. But yeah, you're just dealing with an environment where people can get away with anything because they have your dream in the palm of their hands. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes total sense. And especially when you've worked for so long and and someone has your dream in their hand, you know, it's the ultimate abuse of power, such an ugly thing and such an ugly thing to make a twin do to her other twin. I have, I have twin boys and I just, you know, that that's the kind of stuff that people who people know what they're doing when they do that. Yes. And I think there's some people who get kind of swept in and they're and and they buy into it too. Then there are the masterminds who are like, I'm gonna have the twin sister tell her she can't, you know, like it's it's very, you know, there are people who are just not okay. So a couple things happen which I'm curious if if they are related to sexual trauma because sometimes they are. You did you find out that you had endometriosis while you were in college or was that after? So that was after. So what was interesting about endometriosis was because I was a gymnast, it actually, you know, you might have heard that with gymnasts, it can stop or kind of reduce your period. So for me, it was weird. I, I had signs of endometriosis as a teenager and reference to kind of pain and stuff like that, but it was really kept at bay. And I think it was because of my heavy exercise schedule. But once I retired from gymnastics, I started having severe pain, like to the point where I had been someone, I had a high pain tolerance. I was like, could pretty much put up with any pain, which I'm, you know, other women with endometriosis, like I'm sure they can relate, but it is like, I mean, just awful, awful pain to where I was having to like, I I would miss things. I would miss events because I'd be at home just like with, with a heating pad. And this was every day of the month. It was not just limited to my cycle. It was every single day. And so I... And around this time as well, I had had two reconstructive surgeries on my ankle. So I had actually torn my ankle, dislocated it, basically tore apart my ankle my senior year. But I really wanted to compete my senior season. And so I just had the trainer tape it up, you know, just competed on it. Anyway, so I went to a lot of doctors and it's really disappointing, I think, how much 
endometriosis is not considered when diagnosing women with these like chronic pelvic pain conditions and infertility and and things like that because it is so common and it took me 2 years before I was even able to find a doctor who finally said, let's get you a laparoscopy and let's actually figure out if endometriosis is the cause of this pain. Other people were saying it was IBS. They were saying it was... I mean, all these different things. I was going to a chiropractor. I was. I went to see um, acupuncturists. I went to holistic doctors. No one could figure out what it was. So I graduated in 2017. I got the laparoscopy in 2018. Finally figured out what was the source of this pain. So I was like, oh, okay, this is amazing. We can finally treat this thing. But but my doctor told me, he said, you know, your endometriosis is so advanced that you probably won't be able to have children. So, you know, I was young. I was in my early 20s. But he said, if you and your husband want a family, you should probably discuss it now. And so, you know, that was a tough conversation because I I did not feel ready. But I was thinking, you know, I'm supposed to... I essentially was kind of diagnosed with infertility. So I was like, well, you know, it, it'll probably take us time. You know, it, it'll be okay. By the time we end up, you know, I'll get on fertility medication. By the time we end up conceiving a child, I'll probably be two, three years older older and ready for this. I found out I was pregnant six weeks later. So <laughs> it was it was a blind side. I was very excited, but you know, just not ready. I hadn't had enough time to process that. At that time, I did not realize I had been sexually assaulted. I had this memory and I buried it and it did not come back up for years up until last year, which was the reason why everything unfolded the way it did. So in my pregnancy, I was dealing with this trauma from my coaches and you know, the last thing that we were told when we retired was that we were the product of... I was told that I was the product of a mediocre gymnast who never made it. That was my coach's parting words to me. We were told that we our careers had fallen flat. Continue that verbiage of you're the worst class we ever recruited. We can't wait till you're gone. The next day, our coach changed the passcode on our locker room so we couldn't get back in the lockers. Like He made us feel like we were dirt on his shoe. And so I'm in this place where I'm recovering from two ankle reconstruction surgeries, dealing with this chronic pain condition. Now I have this mentality that I'm stupid, that I'm weak, that I'm a failure. So I throw myself into this very high stress job and then start looking into grad school because I have this mentality that, oh, my, I'm stupid. You know, maybe if I can get my, my uh, graduate degree, I can prove that I'm not stupid. And so I'm already at my stress level max, still trying to adjust to life without training. And so I really, you know, with OCD, my OCD flares up when I'm not in a routine. And so I had 18 years of a routine, five days a week of practice, sometimes more. And all of a sudden that's pulled out from under the rug. So I have no structure that I'm familiar with. And so in my third trimester of pregnancy, I didn't sleep the whole night, just panic attacks on panic attacks on panic attacks. Couldn't even identify why. All I knew is that suddenly I felt like my thoughts were going to hurt me, that my thoughts were going to make me sick. That's when, you know, we talked about this at the very beginning, but that's when it started with the intrusive thoughts about my daughter. And it was to the point where I was shaking, I was white, couldn't eat for this went on for about three months. I knew pretty much right away that I needed to go, I needed to see someone 
I knew pretty much right away it was probably it was a psychiatric emergency. But yeah, I lost. I pretty much lost all grip on reality. I buried so much, and I was dealing with so much to where I woke up and I felt like I had stepped into a different world, and it was a really scary place to be. Endometriosis was this really unfortunate pain condition that led into that just domino affected into all of this. Um, with endometriosis too, I definitely was at one point abusing opioid pain medications. And then, you know, later on went on to abuse Ativan. So endometriosis was a domino, <laughs> was the first domino in a very ugly chain. <laughs> Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hello, friends. The Courage to Change endorses many paths to recovery. This is why Lion Rock has a promising new treatment method for substance use disorder, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. Ketamine-assisted psychotherapy is a progressive new treatment plan that uses ketamine in a supervised setting that assists in both substance use disorder recovery and continued recovery. The NIH concludes that ketamine is a useful tool to help people struggling with substance use disorders, and it can facilitate abstinence across multiple types of abuse disorders. It is also extremely effective in treating anxiety and PTSD when it's paired with psychotherapy. Line Rock's unique approach of pairing licensed counselors with the medication is the true success here when treating substance use disorder. Most other companies are simply sending ketamine to their clients and offering guides. Lion Rock treats the whole person and this new treatment option for substance use disorder recovery and continued recovery continues to show great promise. So if you are interested in Lion Rock's ketamine-assisted psychotherapy program and you want to learn more, go to lionrockrecovery.com. Under programs, scroll down to the ketamine-assisted psychotherapy tab. Now back to the show. That night that you said, you know, knew that you were having a psychiatric emergency, you, you went to the hospital. I, I did not. So I was laying in bed and I was shaking. I, my face was white. I, my husband and my mom were asking me questions and I couldn't talk, which was just the most bizarre thing. But in my mind, I still heard my coach saying, you're making it up. You're making it up. I just had no... I had no ability to represent myself and ask for what I needed. You know, my husband and my mom were just superheroes. So they just said, Amy, what can we do to help you? But at that point, I, there was nothing that anyone could do because this was a battle between me and my own mind. I knew that I needed to see someone and that it was an emergency, but I didn't trust myself at all. And this was third trimester. Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you're pregnant. And at this time, are you taking the Ativan for panic? I was actually not on any medication. I went to a psychiatrist who was a bad doctor. But at that time, I just knew to trust bad doctors. I That had been my whole life. Trust bad coaches, trust bad doctors. So I didn't question that at all. And he knew I was seven months pregnant, but he just said... Um, let's try Ativan. You know, I want you to participate in this study of women who are taking Ativan during pregnancy. So now at the time I was thinking, I was like, oh, well, okay, whatever. But now I look back and I'm like, so I was basically your lab rat. You were just writing me bottles and bottles of Ativan and asking me to log my progress with it so that you could use it for research. And it's just absolutely sick. So I would go and I would say, this is the only thing that's calming my panic attacks. What I didn't realize is that Ativan was 
I would feel calm. But then what would happen two, three hours later is I would crash. And then just very aggressive suicidal thoughts. I would start formulating plans. I would... I had those memory gaps that just felt terrifying. So in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, I probably just need more Ativan to relax. So I'm not, I, I didn't realize, you know, I was like, oh, I'm a good kid. It's same thing with the opioid pain medication. It's like, I think a lot of people, unfortunately, look at drug use and addiction and abuse as, you know, it, that's something the bad kids do, the rebel kids do. I'm a division one athlete. I'm a dean scholar. I'm a straight A student. That's something that happens to other people. I'm just using these drugs to manage my pain, you know? And so it's, you think that it's something that, can't happen to you or it's not happening to you. You think, especially when you have a doctor writing you the prescriptions, you know, I had doctors writing me pain medication for my ankle. It's like, oh, what's the big difference? I'll just take it for endometriosis to where I'm taking it in such large volumes, I'm vomiting it up. I was vomiting the night of my sister's wedding because I had taken too much pain medication from, you know, that I had obtained from my surgery. And so it was the same thing with Ativan. It was like, this must be the right thing to do because my doctor's telling me to do it and it's okay. But you know, my husband knew right away. He's like, Amy, this is this is not right. He would take the pills from me. He would hide them, and I just became irate. And it was so scary to see myself like that because it was like another person came in. It was like if anyone talked to me about touching my Ativan, it was like another beast came out that I never knew existed. It was just bizarre. It came from such a point of just not knowing, not knowing what addiction was, not knowing what drug-seeking behavior was. I just thought, now I look back, I'm like, oh, that was drug-seeking behavior. That, you know, but you don't know. Play for me the scene of having your daughter and what was going on, what the medical situation was. I remember the day. It was June 7th, 2019, which is still a very difficult day for me to talk about. But it was actually a good day because that was the day where things started getting better. So it was a really dark day. I had hit a low point where I I was afraid for my own life. And I knew I shouldn't be left alone. I was alone. But it was the grace of God. That was the one thing I, I turned to in all of this was my faith. I lived in my Bible. I lived in my faith because that's all I had. You know, I had this wonderful family, which I was so fortunate to have because so many people who are struggling with mental health and struggling with addiction don't have that. I just can't even imagine how impossible that must be. But thankfully for me, I did have that, but I was just so far gone in this addiction and in this severe mental health crisis to where there was nobody I felt that could help me. They could be there for me and they could love me and support me. And, you know, my husband was my rock, but there was nobody who could help, truly help me. Thankfully, that day that I'd hit that dark, very, very dark place, my sister came over. And, you know, it was from there, it just unfolded to where my husband did take me to the hospital. We went to labor and delivery because that's, you know, where we were instructed to go. In my mind, I was like, I cannot believe that this is happening. I cannot believe that this is my life and that I'm doing this right now. And just my coach's voice in my head screaming, What are you doing? You're weak. You're making this up. So I said, I'm having suicidal thoughts. I whispered it. <laughs> and then I said, But if I check in, is this going to be really expensive? Or, you know, that's my thought. I'm like, well, I can't afford this. I'm, make, I'm already making this up. And so I will never forget one of the nurses. She stood up. She walked around the counter and she looked at me and she said, Amy, you need to check in. And so I said, okay. That was one of the best, maybe the best decision I ever made. From, for, that was the first time in my adult life that I stood up for myself. 
And everything changed from then. They did determine that I was addicted to Ativan. So they started the detox. They determined that I I would stay there until delivery. So they um, kept me in the antepartum unit and I was on the 24-hour watch. Yeah. So I was on that for about 10 days. We decided that I would have an induction And then the reason for it would be a psychiatric emergency, which is just bizarre. I mean, you think you have this perfectly healthy pregnancy and you're getting induced due to a psychiatric emergency. I mean, it's just, I felt so, it was just so bizarre. But what was so amazing was having this thought going in. If I, if I check myself in, they're going to take my baby away. They're going to tell me I'm weak. They're going to send me home. That was the opposite of what happened. I had, I mean, even the women who were my sitters in my room, they would take me on walks. They would say, okay, I'm going to talk to the front staff. Um, we're not going to sit in this room all day. I'm going to take you on a walk. And these nurses who were just would come in and sit with me and just let me cry on their shoulder and made me feel like, no, you're not crazy. You're not crazy. There's <laughs> like, you are going through something hard and we are going to get you through this and you are not leaving this hospital until you feel safe. That was the beginning of so much healing. From there, I mean, it wasn't easy, but everything changed after that. What was the OCD treatment that you did? Great question. So I did... um, After I was discharged, I was in a much better place. They had stabilized my mood. So I really was... I was happier. I still had not gotten a diagnosis of OCD. So what they were really treating was they were utilizing kind of a regimen of antipsychotics just to stabilize mood. And then they were also utilizing SSRIs. So it actually took a little bit of time. I still did have the OCD, but it wasn't distressing to the point where I was severely depressed because I'd had that mood regulation. So I actually went on... I conceived my son almost immediately afterwards. And, you know, if people would say, Oh, that sounds like an accident because like, how could you go through this horrible thing and then want to have another child? It was not an accident. It was planned. And the reason it was planned was I felt like I had failed my pregnancy and I needed a do over. And it was that gymnastics mentality that came in, get back up and do it again. That's what I thought I had to do. I was like, well, I failed. I blew it. You know, I'm on Instagram looking at all these people who have these wonderful, magical pregnancies and lovely baby showers. And I'm just thinking, oh, in my baby shower, I was on, I was on so much out of it. I can't even remember where I was. Like, I don't even remember that whole thing. And then, you know, all these wonderful stories of you go into labor and you're in the hospital and you have this magical moment when you're holding your baby. I was like, oh, yeah, I was in the hospital on a psych hold. I was induced. And the moment my baby was born, they took her to transition to make sure she wasn't having drug side effects. As a mother, that is the worst feeling to have your baby be born and have that be a concern. I can't even put into words. And so... I was robbed of that joy. I wanted a do-over. I needed to do it perfectly this time, which my pregnancy with my son was, you know, it was very closely monitored, uh, first of all. Second of all, it was wonderful. But after he was born, that's when the OCD really started to to play. And that's when it jumped to that theme of like that order and symmetry and neatness. I would come home after working. And, you know, once I was back at work, I'd come home after working, spend three, four hours a night, totally not with my present with my family because I was dusting and cleaning and putting things back in order on the shelves because I thought I don't deserve to relax until 
everything is me. You know, I just thought that that was normal. But I really did start to experience, I started to experience some like flashbacks after my son was born. So the night he was born in the hospital, I actually asked the nurses, I said, I can't, I can't be with him tonight. Um, and that whole night up until about midnight, 1am, I just laid in the hospital bed shaking. Like, I can't believe I'm back in this hospital room. And I didn't attribute that to trauma. I just attributed it to, oh, I must be really anxious. I had no idea that this was OCD. I had no idea that this was post-traumatic stress. And so finally, one day, it just got really bad. And I told my husband, I was like, I'm not doing well again. Thankfully, we know that this needs to be stopped right away. So I talked to my psychiatrist. At that point, that's when she recommended a partial hospitalization program, which I said, well, I'm working. I don't know how that will be possible. And so she said, okay, well, let's at least consider an intensive outpatient program. That's what I went into. That's where I was really starting. I got diagnosed with OCD. That's where the real treatment began. And so after I discharged from the program, I was kind of directed towards, okay, you should, where you really need to be right now is with an OCD therapist. So let's get you to no CD. I mean, the most effective treatment that I have ever received in light of OCD, just absolutely life changing. What does your recovery look like today? I think I had to go through all of those things. And I always, you know, because I'm a Christian, I always look at things kind of from like a divine perspective, like, why God did this happen to me? This horrible, horrible thing or series of horrible things. You know, at first you just have anger. How could you do this to me? But because of what I went through, I have had so much more strength to speak up about things because I realize what it's like to feel so small and so helpless. And I never want anyone else to feel that way. I knew obviously I had been pretty horrifically emotionally, verbally abused in college. I had not recognized at that point that I had been sexually assaulted. But around around the time I uh, discharged from intensive outpatient, there had been an article that came out in the news about a gymnast who had been on the team at San Jose State who was assaulted by the trainer. And I looked at it and I was like, I was on the team with this person. That was the first time my mind kind of thought, maybe could that have happened to me? But just didn't go there. I just didn't go there. But I did email the reporter, wonderful human being. His name is Elliot. He's now retired. But anyway, we just got to talking and I ended up telling him my whole story. Just, I mean, everything. I told him everything about San Jose State and what the coach had done to us and about this investigation that had been covered up. And he was the first person to tell me, you have a story to tell and we are going to make sure it gets told. He said, would you feel comfortable coming forward publicly about this? And I said, "What can I make it anonymous? And he said, it's going to be tough. It's going to be really tough to pitch that to my editors, to have you come forward with this thing without a face. And so I was like, I don't know, let's hold off. And he was so understanding, just like, let's work with you. Let's work with you. And so in my mind, it was months go by where I'm talking to this reporter. One day, I just started revisiting this memory. And I was like, you know what? I think I might have been assaulted. I think I might have been sexually assaulted. Still really pushed it down until one day in November, I was at work. I can't even necessarily say what prompted this. I was just sitting at my desk and I got up and I went I, I went to my boss and I said, I don't really feel well. I think I need to go home. So I left and I just started driving towards Tustin. I live in Irvine. I just started driving the opposite direction and just started crying. Just felt like screaming. And it took every ounce of strength I had to just not start screaming in my car because I realized that I had been sexually assaulted in all of the other ways that I had been wronged. I now 
had to add sexual assault to that list. You know, for the first time, I actually did see myself as I was a victim. And all this time, I before that, I thought this was all my fault. I'm weak. This is why I had this massive breakdown. At that point, I realized I was wronged by San Jose State. I was damaged by San Jose State. And I was sexually assaulted at San Jose State. The amount of anger that came with that was... I can't even put into words. And so I did come forward. I agreed to speak with... I agreed to work with the... And cooperate with the FBI. So I had an FBI deposition. And this lawsuit starts. And so that was all of 2022. So this year, I obtained my lawyers in January of this year. And so this whole year has been just a whirlwind since then. But it has been so healing. So that day where finally we settled... Um, in mediation, that day when everything came out in the media was a really scary day. The whole night before, I could barely sleep. I just had these horrible nightmares of what could happen once this thing became public. And the next day, it was crazy. East Bay Mercury News came out with something. And then I think the next morning, LA Times came out with my story. The day of the LA Times and the Mercury News when they came out with everything, my phone did not stop ringing for four or five days. And it was just these young women who I'd been on the team with and some young women who were from other sports at San Jose State or other sports entirely, not even with the school, just calling me, texting me, messaging me how much justice they felt that this story brought them. Because there were so many people that had participated in this 2018 investigation um, within the gymnastics program who had, you know, at that time, the university had really not given them the results of the report. The coach was just let go with accolades. He was congratulated for his service to the program and he retired. And that was that was it. The Spartan Daily wrote a celebratory article and he was gone. Yeah. So these young women who had been so brave in participating in this investigation were reaching out to me saying, this is the first time that we've heard of this investigation in public record, which the public record of the investigation findings is actually included in the Mercury News story. So it's there. The private investigators found him to be an abusive. abusive. They actually used the word abusive coach and a list of all of the violations and all of the findings. And so there was so much healing for so many people. And I will never say that what I'm glad for what I went through, but I am glad that it has empowered me and to realize that this is important that someone stands up for these athletes who are young and impressionable and who are so easily trusting their coaches and their trainers and they're being taken advantage of. Too many people I've talked to were suicidal while they were on the team at San Jose State on the gymnastics team and you would have never known it. This advocating for athletes has been healing for me. That's been my healing process. It's It has been the most healing, most difficult, but most healing journey for me. It's beautiful. And it's such an important role. If someone had done that for you, you could have avoided some of the suffering, but that wasn't there at the time. And so you get to be there for other people and other women who are experiencing that. And it's an important thing to do. And it's, it's, it is so much a part of all different types of healing is helping other people get through their healing and giving away the gifts 
that you were given. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a wonderful way of putting it. And yeah, it's been so important to me that other athletes and other people feel safe. You know, that's that was the most important thing for me coming forward with all of this is I just don't I don't want my experience to happen to someone else and I will do everything that I can to make sure that that doesn't happen to someone else. <laughs> At this point, nobody can do anything like San Jose State cannot do anything more to hurt me. They have done their worst. I don't feel afraid of them anymore. My journey brought me to that place where there's no more fear because I had everything taken away from me. But with other victims recovering, there is so much fear still. I want those people and those young women and, you know, other athletes, young men who have been had, you know, traumatizing experiences in the NCAA or in athletics. I want them to know that that's not normal. You deserve to feel safe. And there is someone out there that cares and wants to advocate for you. And there's a lot of people that actually do. You have to know where to find them. I, you know, I point them to the NCAA. PA. Wonderful, wonderful goals within that organization. It's a nonprofit organization. They work so hard to get athletes these rights in the NCAA. And so there are people that care. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, something can become normal that isn't okay. And so there can be a new normal. And that's what you're helping to create. And I think it's just amazing. And I love this work that you're doing. If people want to find you and support this cause and support you, is there somewhere they can get a hold of you? Yeah, absolutely. So I do have my Instagram. I'm always happy to speak with people and just support them and what they're going through. I think it's Amy LeClaire underscore. So just first last name underscore. And yeah, feel free to add me and message me or whatever. Well, thank you so much for coming on here and sharing your story. It's an incredible story. I think you are incredibly brave and courageous going through all the things that you went through and coming out with this. And I think it's really important work and I'm glad that there's someone out there doing it. So thank you so much for sharing your story. It's important. Of course. Thank you, Ashley. And I appreciate you all reaching out to me and giving me the opportunity to share it with you. This has been a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you. Oof, man. That is intense and so inspiring. Yeah. Amy's story is... I, it's just unbelievable. I find myself in awe of so many people on this show, but her story is just one where I'm just amazed by what she was able to overcome and what she was able to go through. I mean, to be someone who is at that level, who has competed at such a high level for such a long time, and then to be brought to this very low, low, deal with that in the right way and and the what how she's using her platform now is just unbelievable. I there's not many people that are just as incredible as Amy is and and just as tough. I mean to be able to get through all that stuff is un, unreal. What really struck me as, you know, someone who isn't an athlete was the power dynamics that arrived because I'm sure that people who have who are athletes or, you know, college athletes and they have worked their whole life in one sport and experienced that level of pressure, they're all nodding their heads like, yeah, that sounds about right, what have you. But I could not believe how similarly she was treated and the the use of manipulation and and you know power games were to when I was in residential adolescent lockdown in Utah. I kept thinking to myself, they did that to us when we were in lockdown, you know, th these are, these are things that 
are very specific ways to get people to submit to you. The separation from the family, the dynamics, you know, we're going to take everything from you. We own you. All of this stuff. I couldn't believe it's it's wild. And she talks about, I can't remember if she talked about this to us after or in the episode, but that basically this was going on at a lot of other schools. Like she, she, the, the, the feedback she got was, you know, later on when she came out with it was that this was happening other places too. And she thought that maybe if she was at another school, things would have been better, but it turns out that that is not the case. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think it's kind of the tip of the iceberg, right? I mean, it's, I, I wonder if there's some little evil layer where all these people get their playbook. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Like, do yeah. they have meetings regularly or something like that? And they're like, here's how you do it. You break them down in all these ways. Yeah. You, you do, you make unrealistic expectations. You make them feel like they're constantly failing. You, yep. um, you dehumanize them. You yep. make them dehumanize their teammates. You create an environment in which certain things happen to whistleblowers. And then, oh boy, like the most diabolical. How about when I have this horrible message to deliver to your sister? I get the twin sister to do it how do you how how evil just evil evil and and as a twin mom i was like when to throw up you know just like that bond that you're fucking with is just i mean you know it just siblings in general but jesus that's just you know you're really thinking about ways that you can infiltrate and hurt people for for many years to come you know for me i'm thinking to myself girlfriend get the fuck out of there. Like, why, why are you there? Right. And she explains like you have, and, and I, I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. You have worked your entire life day in, day out, six, seven days a week, the intensity. And then I can imagine, what do you do if you show up and you're going to lose an opportunity or you think you're going to lose an opportunity and you're stuck? You know, I can imagine feeling really fucking stuck. Yeah. And honestly, I think there's a, I think there's this communication that happens from a really young age plays into this as well. And where it's just this idea in sports about sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice. And they play on that as well, right? It's like, you didn't want it enough. You, you know, if you want to do great things, then you have to be willing to give something up. If you want to do great things, you're going to have to push past this discomfort, this pain, this whatever it is. It's just put out there and put out there and put out there. Then, then it just becomes a, a continuation of that story. That's and, and that's say, true. Okay. Yeah. That's true. Right. So you say thing and that's that's the thing like a abuse it's mixed in with truth it's mixed in with things that are are relevant and and that is how it gets so confusing you know i I love that amy is doing stuff to help and that she came out with it that is super brave and it reminds me so much that you know she talks about these bottoms and her bottoms were gnarly you know ending up in in the psych a psych hold while you're pregnant, you know, delivering the Ativan, all the things, right? And what it reminds me of is how important resilience and grit are and how valuable it is to have these really intense negative experiences in order to come back and be stronger, you know, help others. Like it is a really powerful thing to hit bottom. Like that is it's that's the message over and over again that there is power in 
the restructuring of your life so that you understand what's actually important. It is horribly uncomfortable every moment of it, you know, and and I think of muscles, right? When you're working out in order to get bigger muscles, the muscles stretch, they break this, the, the fibers actually break apart in order to get bigger and scar tissue, you know, toughens up and not that people should go out and tank their whole lives, but these experiences that you have that are just incomprehensible or the pain, it is the touchstone of growth. It is necessary in order to reach higher levels of of self-actualization. And again, I never would want anybody to go through what Amy went through. And I know that Amy is doing a lot of work to help other people in that community not have to go through that. But it just strikes me as one of those things, like the story is the same. If you can come back from losing everything, falling apart, if you can come back from, if you can, you know, learn the skills, the tools, get the treatment, get the help, you're not getting better in spite of what happened to you. You're getting better because of what happened to you. It actually makes you stronger than you would have been. And that's a beautiful thing if you can, if you can harness it. Yeah. There was just one moment where it seemed maybe kind of small and I just wanted to like zoom in on it because to me, it was just such a beautiful moment. It was just the acceptance she received when she finally went to the hospital just yes. to have gone through all of that and, yes. to, and to have that moment where she has like she says okay like i i need to go there and i don't i don't know what to do with this exactly but i'm like i'm trying to do the right thing and to just finally be met with kindness finally somebody's there to look out for her and the and the nurses that are walking yeah. her around and just showing her kindness when she had been given very little for so long. I think that that shouldn't be overlooked or taken for granted what that can be for people. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're totally right. You're totally right. And I just kept thinking this has to be an under discussed issue because I know for me, you know, I got off my antidepressants while I was pregnant or before I was got pregnant and then was off them and, you know, got extreme, you know, my pregnancy was a shit show, but got extremely depressed, extremely depressed. And I don't know, suicidal is the right word, but whatever is right up against suicidal is that's where I was. You know, my mom came down and moved in with me. And when I was thinking about her in in that situation, I was like, yeah, I was not mentally prepared for what I was going to go through. And that must be a common thing. Like it didn't occur. I'm like, oh yeah, it's a really difficult thing. I can guarantee you so many women experience just that white knuckling it at the end where you are, you know that you're doing this for a higher purpose and that it's important, but man, the, the thoughts in your head are bleak and it is scary and it is lonely and you know, for those people to come in and show her kindness and for there to be support for pregnant women who are suffering from mental health crises is really, really important. I hadn't really thought about it extensively because, you know, I had the support. Well, I, you know, sometimes we do jokes, sometimes we don't do the jokes. I feel like in this one, maybe a little bit of lightness at the end is not yeah. the worst thing. Pretty, yeah, that, yeah. pretty Let's do heavy it. one. Let's do so, it. I think we'll Amy would appreciate us doing it. I think so too. So a lot of people don't realize this is autobiographical. Oh, okay. Okay, good. Yeah. So when I was a kid, I had some hardship too. My dad got fired from his job as a road worker for theft. I refused to believe that he could do such a thing. But when I got home, the signs were all there. Oh my God. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, at least I got it this time. Dear God. <laughs> I've had a bunch of those where I'm like, okay. You know, I got to just keep you guessing. Like, you know, yeah, it, gets, yeah, yeah. it gets stale if I just do the same old setup, whatever, you know. Sometimes it's got to be a thinker. Sometimes it's got to be low hanging fruit. Sometimes it's just, you know, a story from my life about my dad as a road worker. Okay. So I either don't get it, it takes <laughs> me a minute, or I think it's real. Like, wow, I am. Jeez, I really or pure I was... hatred is option four too. Pure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah or <laughs> disgust, yeah, or total and utter like disgust. Well, we're rooting for you this week, especially after a heavy episode. We hope you do something nice for yourself. I would just encourage anybody who feels like they need help wherever, whatever stage you are in life. I feel like uh, in pregnancy might be the last place where people sometimes feel like they can ask for help. But if you need the help, I would hope that this will be encouragement that if you ask for the help, that there there is help out there for you. Ashley, anything that you want to leave the people with today? If that playbook sounded familiar to you, the one we talked about, the one that Scott said and that and then I repeated, and that's going on in your life, I encourage you to take a look at it and think about that and consider whether or not you're in a relationship that may need some fine tuning or otherwise. Anyone who's in and in a relationship where they feel stuck or scared, if a bunch of those things sound ring true to you, it's very likely that you are in a very toxic power dynamic. And so I encourage you to take a look at that. All right, my friends, I'll see you next week. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.